This is Patrick Ryan from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Welcome to our March 25th edition of the International Career Panel. We have a very special program tonight on U.S. diplomacy. And with me is Alan DeBose from the U.S. State Department. He is diplomat in residence in Atlanta, Georgia at Spelman College. And his territory is uh, across the South, uh, Northern Alabama, Northern Georgia, and Tennessee. Welcome, Alan. Thank you for uh, joining us for this uh, international career panel. Thank you for having me. Uh, we will uh, spend some time uh, with uh, with Mr. DeBose this evening talking about the U.S. Foreign Service, uh, how one uh, applies to the Foreign Service and gets selected, and what it's like to serve as a diplomat abroad. Um, uh, Alan has been uh, posted to a number of places uh, overseas, so he'll talk about that. And then we will uh, have a presentation uh, and then take your questions. So this should be a terrific opportunity for those interested in working at the State Department uh, or with the U.S. Foreign Service abroad as, a, as an American diplomat to learn more about uh, how to get into that and what life is like uh, doing that. First, let me tell you something about uh, our guest tonight, uh, Alan DeBose. Uh, he's a management track foreign service specialist or generalist with more than 14 years experience at the U.S. Department of State. Uh, prior to joining the foreign service, he enjoyed a 20-year career that included positions in finance at corporations like IBM and Digital Electronic Equipment, uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, excuse me. He also rose to the position of regional director of operations for North America at Satellite telecommunications provider Iridium LLC. Since joining the Foreign Service, he has served overseas as a vice consul in Hermosillo, Mexico, general services officer in Guayaquil, uh, Ecuador, and management officer in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. He's also served as an area manager for Latin America with the Department of State's Bureau of Overseas Building Operations in human resources with the Executive Office of the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs, South Central Asian Affairs, and as a post management officer with the Executive Office of the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, International Organizations Affairs. Uh, he graduated from the College of William and Mary with a BA in economics and Atlanta University with an MBA in concentration in finance. Again, Alan, welcome and uh, thanks again for joining us this evening. Thank you again for having me. A quick little housekeeping thing is that will people have access to chat or how will we work? Yes. Yeah, we, uh, we will have the chat box open. Um, since you mentioned housekeeping, I will ask that uh, questions uh, for Mr. DeBose go into the Q&A uh, button at the bottom of your Zoom screen. It's easier for us to keep track of the questions. Sometimes they get lost in chat. So please uh, put your questions uh, into the, the Q&A uh, box, but feel free to carry on a conversation uh, in the chat box. We will be posting some links uh, to relevant information and uh, uh, some additional information about the U.S. Foreign Service. Uh, you can also find information um, about uh, Mr. DeBose on our tnwac.org website. Alan, um, you, you've got uh, an interesting career. You were not a uh, Foreign Service officer uh, young, impressionable, right out of college, you had a career in the, in the financial world before getting involved in the foreign service. Give us a, a little bit about uh, your background. Where did you grow up? Uh, what uh, 
what interested you as a young man and, and, uh, and then uh, tell us how you got interested in the Foreign Service. Sure. So I'm one of these people who've been traveling his entire life. So I was born at Timid Air Force Base in outside Panama City, Florida. And as I understand it, I'm told that we immediately moved up to Alaska. So going from Florida to Alaska before I was even a year old and just kept right on going. Uh, so when I got older, I kind of had that travel bug. And we'll discuss a little bit about how I got ended up in the US Foreign Service. But what it really came down to was a lot of it is personality. And I always tell people that we really don't compete with corporate America because many times people in corporate America have one attitude about their lifestyles Whereas the Foreign Service is a different attitude and some people just kind of have that personality and others not so much. So uh, if we're ready, I'll go ahead and start the presentation. We can have a little back Please, please do. Uh, uh, we're looking forward to that. And uh, then we will take some questions and have a conversation about the Foreign Service and the State Department. The floor right, is yours. So wish me luck with the screen sharing. Hopefully things go well here, we'll see. All right, give me a thumbs up if you can see full screen. We're looking good. Got it. All right, here we go. So we're going to talk today about the U.S. Department of State and U.S. Foreign Service. I will touch slightly on the civil service, but most of my focus will be on the U.S. Foreign Service. So again, my name is Alan DuBose. My current title is Diplomat in Residence, and I can be contacted at EIRSAL at state.gov. So look down in the bottom right-hand corner, you'll see careers.state.gov. Probably 80% of what will come out of my mouth, you can find at careers.state.gov. And the other 20% will be based on the questions you have for me that hopefully will be customized to maybe your unique interests or your concerns. I will also talk a lot today about usajobs.gov. So careers.state.gov is an excellent site to learn more and usajobs.gov is the site that the US federal government jobs are normally posted. So if you go to careers.state.gov, many times you'll end up at usajobs.gov at some point in the process. So what we're gonna talk about today is understanding very quickly the difference between the US Department of State and US Foreign Service. We'll talk a little bit about motivations. Why do people even want to be diplomats? And what are the career options? And then we'll close with student opportunities and head into the questions. So the first thing I'm going to ask, we're not really that interactive, so I'm not gonna expect you to come back with an answer, but I'll give you a second or two to think about it. And then we'll use honor code to know if you knew the answer or not. Here's my question. Where am I in this photograph? The hint is on my head. So I'm gonna count five seconds, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. 1,004, 1,005. All right, how many people, and again, I, I can't check this, so you gotta be honest. How many people knew that I was in Medellin, Colombia? And the reason the hint is on my head is because that is a Vuelteal. If you went to Medellin or Antioquia in Colombia and said that that was a cowboy hat, that would be offensive. Uh, think of in Medellin, that cowboy hat or this Vuelteal looks very normal. But the same way a cowboy hat in Texas looks very normal, it would look out of place in maybe Manhattan. Well, if someone's wearing a Vuelteal in downtown Bogota, Colombia, 
people would immediately know they're not from Bogota, they're probably from Medellin or the Antioquia area. And that's the great thing that we're gonna talk about. When you travel internationally, you start to learn a lot of unique things that can be very interesting. So what is the mission of US Department of State? The mission is to lead you see abroad. So there are other agencies that have their own missions. DOD works abroad, the intelligence agencies as well abroad, but the US Department of State represents US foreign policy abroad. Who and where are we? Well, the Department of State has led US foreign policy interests in 1789. We're actually the oldest federal agency starting around 1924 and going on, they started to take some of the work that was being done within the Department of State and separate it into the US Foreign Service. So think of the US Foreign Service as a part within the Department of State. And the people who are working for the Department of State who are not part of the US Foreign Service are normally our civil servants. And the roles they provide are very similar to other agencies and the civil servants who work there. The Foreign Service personnel are on their own pay scale and promotion plans, but they are falling under the Department of State umbrella. We're headquartered in Washington, D.C. and have special purpose offices spread throughout the U.S. Uh, about 276 posts abroad spread across 191 countries. Now, why don't the numbers add up? And the reason is because we have consulates and embassies. So the overwhelming majority of the time when we have representation in a country, it is an embassy that we post there. If the U.S. has special interests in that country, the two most common special interests are a lot of American citizens who are living in that country, and the other one is economic interests, then we will place a consulate in that country as well. The uh, U.S. Department of State has around 74,000 employees, roughly of which only 14,000 our U.S. Foreign Service, 10,000 approximately are civil service, and the majority are actually our locally employed staff who are very important to us. These are people who are abroad, who are working for that embassy, U.S. Embassy or Consulate abroad. They may or may not be U.S. citizens, but they are working for us in that country. And the reason they're so important is we're like military. We get our orders, we know we're going to arrive at a certain time overseas, we know when we're going to leave. So we need people who are not only doing the hands-on work, we also need people who are providing that archival knowledge. So when we arrive to a new post and we can't even find the bathroom, we need someone who's not only going to do that, but introduce us to some of the, the people who will be working with in the local governments. So what are some common motivations for joining the U.S. Foreign Service? Supporting U.S. interests and security initiatives. Well, I mentioned DOD already. That's one way some Americans want to support U.S. security initiatives is maybe working for the military. Some people choose Peace Corps or other options. Well, the U.S. Foreign Service is a great opportunity to have a very professional career doing something of great value where you are supporting U.S. interests and security initiatives. Part of a unique community. It ends up kind of being a click. And as I said, we're not as big as people think. And the reality is that you start to kind of know people over and over and over. And that's kind of a cool thing, actually. I was in the Buenos Aires airport one time and saw somebody carrying a duffel bag and it had the logo of state on it. So I started talking to him. And before you knew it, we had five people in common we knew. Public service. 
Some people have the attitude they truly want to help American citizens in need overseas, and you get every opportunity as a U.S. Foreign Service officer to do that. Imagine if you were overseas and something happened and you needed help and you see some American who understands your background and what your needs are, who speaks the language and can help you out in your time of need, you really do provide benefits. Career-long training and academic growth. The culture at the US, in the U.S. Foreign Service and at the Department of State is very academic-oriented, so there may not necessarily be requirements for certain education. However, what you discover is that's definitely the attitude people have. We train people so they learn what they need to do to go do their job, to be successful when we send them overseas. So as you're going to discover as I talk, many times we're very focused on candidates who demonstrate the ability to learn whatever it is we're going to teach them. So someone who's joining U.S. Foreign Service should be expecting to be in a process of learning throughout their entire career. Job challenge. Doing whatever you do, you're good at it in the States. Well, imagine being sent overseas where the language they speak there, you just started studying six months ago back in school and the whole process is different. This is a challenge. So even though you may be good at whatever skills you have, it is a challenge when you have to go overseas. People consider that a frustration. Other people look at it like a motivation. This looks like fun, something I'm gonna enjoy my time here. And uh, others look at the front line of service. Think about it. anytime you see something on TV blowing up and it's a special report, who's the first official American who's probably going to find out what's going on and start reporting back? If you think about it, it's probably gonna be someone from the US Foreign Service because we're already out there. We're already spread across the world. And we'll talk when I switch to the next slide about family or lifestyle interests. I was someone who joined mid-career. So my interests, a lot of it had to do with my family and opportunities for my family. And that's why I pulled up this photo uh, over to the right from a newspaper. I know newspapers are kind of, they're not around much anymore, but this was an ad that I saw back in 2004 where Colin Powell was saying, we're looking for administrators. And I thought to myself, I'm an administrator. So I've, I've been working for a long time in business, about 17 years I've been working in private industry. And what I was seeing throughout my career is I kind of got bored easily. That's why I bounced. I would go between business operations and finance and back to business operations. And I go from Chicago to DC, uh, Florida. I was going different places. And what I started to realize, it wasn't the job, it was, it wasn't the excitement of travel. So when I saw this ad, I started thinking, maybe I need to look into this. And I looked at careers.state.gov. And when you go to careers.state.gov, there's an assessment. They call it a quiz, but it's really an assessment where you put in your interest and then it gives a, 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 an explanation of what our opinion is of where you would fit in the organization, uh, whatever career track that would be. Well, I took that. And it pretty much said what I would thought was, Alan, you're a management officer. So I started the process of joining U.S. Foreign Service, and it's been a fantastic career. I mentioned personal reasons. So in my case, again, when I joined, I already had children and been married. I was, I was older. 
So I didn't necessarily have the excitement of uh, getting the adrenaline rush you can get at some post. I said, what opportunities can there be for my family and expand the opportunities for them? Uh, and you can see my daughter on the right here, she's at Virginia Tech right now, but this is when she naively thought she was gonna go to school in New York City and we were gonna pay those private school tuitions. And so I said, yeah, go up to New York and look at some schools there. And oh, by the way, hey, I know somebody at UN, you want a tour? So she got a tour of the UN because that was the environment we were in where we were meeting and networking with people all the time. My daughter on the left, this is Take Your Daughter to Work Day, and she's at the studio at the US Department of State at Maine State. It's a professional quality studio. So whenever you see productions being made at US Department of State, you see the spokesperson for the State Department, it's coming from the studio. It's an incredible experience for your family. Fascinating travel experiences. We took advantage of any opportunity we could with Uncle Sam, who was providing benefits to us. And what they do, like in the military as well, when you're on a normal like three-year tour, once a year, Uncle Sam will pay for you to go visit your family back home. And they call that R&R, &R, rest and relaxation. Well, there's a little asterisk that says, you don't have to go back to the States. You just can't spend a lot of money and we said, well, we know our family, so let's take this money instead and let's go to Athens and let's go to Paris and let's go to Madrid. So we had some fantastic experiences overseas we would not have had if I had been doing the exact same work in the States. I mentioned the, the work diversity and the excitement of these jobs that every two to three years you're doing something different learning different languages. If anybody ever wanted to learn different languages, you will be given every opportunity as a US Foreign Service officer. And finally, experiencing a global lifestyle. If people like that concept, then you, again, will have every opportunity to be in a global lifestyle instead of just thinking locally. So I'm not gonna go through this whole thing, but this is just a list of places I can remember traveling on Uncle Sam's dime. Some of these places I was there just a few days and other times I was there for weeks at a time. But again, I had great experiences and if I went to this list, I could tell stories about each one of them. So we talked about the US Department of State and the subset is the US Foreign Service. Now we're gonna talk about some careers. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time talking about the civil service career. I'm gonna focus more on US Foreign Service However, if you, if you go to careers.state.gov, you will find information about the uh, and it will explain to you the process. The process when applying is going through usajobs.gov. So as you look on the left where the yellow is, you'll see some of the jobs that are available. Many of these careers with the, as a civil servant, are very similar to other agencies like budget administration or legal counsel, but we do have our own foreign affairs or passport and visa services that is unique to the Department of State. So as you go through careers.state.gov, it'll lead you to a vacancy announcement at usajobs.gov. And I don't know if you can see where it says overview, locations, duties, requirements. This is a vacancy announcement and this is your Bible. Whenever you are applying for a federal job, as a civil servant, whatever it says in the vacancy announcement is your guiding document, regardless of what you read elsewhere or regardless of what anybody tells you, that is the guiding document. 
So again, you start at careers.state.gov and it will lead you to usajobs.gov when you're looking at civil service opportunities. So now we're gonna talk foreign service. Foreign service, becoming a diplomat really has two general paths and then they go into more specific career opportunities. When we're talking about the uh, general paths, it's either foreign service officers and we use the term generalist interchangeably when we talk about officers and there are only five career options. Then we also talk about our foreign service specialists. With the specialists, there are more options. The big difference is our generalists throughout their careers are not only expected, they're required to work outside of whatever their career track is. Whereas our foreign service specialists may literally be sitting in the same office as an FSO, but what they are expected to do through most of their career is serve in whatever their specialty is. So a finance person should expect to be doing finance work throughout the entire career. Facility manager should expect to be a facility manager throughout their entire career. Whereas the officers are called generalists because they're expected to do more than whatever their career track is. So let's take a look first at the specialist career tracks. Broadly, they're administration, construction engineering. Somebody has to build the embassies and consulates abroad. Those are our construction engineers. Facility management, someone has to take care of all these properties once they're built. Someone has to be in charge of things like parking garages, construction after the fact, uh, pretty much anything you can think of as far as real estate. IT, of course we need IT. And a big difference for us that's unique is we have to deal with IT at different levels, top secret, SCI, uh, secret, different levels of communication. And another thing about IT is we have the people working locally who do a lot of the hands-on work. So our IT people, they have to have that knowledge of IT, but they're expected to be supervisors. So one thing about being in the US Foreign Service is you can expect to be a supervisor throughout your entire career and a great benefit to someone who has technical skills and wants an IT career with us is actually the soft skills and communication skills because many times that IT person might be called on to tap deep speak to everybody, including the ambassador, to be able to explain what's going on, especially when it gets to complex technical issues. We have information language programs, medical and health. Yes, we do have doctors, regional psychologists or psychiatrists, nurse practitioners working abroad, office management, which is more the administrative clerical, and law enforcement and security, which probably no one's ever heard of that, but you may heard of diplomatic security. That's who they are. They're the people who are in charge of taking care of all of us whenever we're abroad, and they actually do a very, very good job. So we talked about the specialists broadly. Now we're gonna talk about the foreign service officers slash generalists and go through the career options for them. So for the officers, there's consular. Consular has two broad roles and those two roles are mostly the first line of offering visas to people who want to enter the US. So when someone is not an American citizen and they want to visit the US for some reason, for many countries, they're going to have to talk to a consular officer 
and prepare documents to convince that consular officer that they are going to go to the U.S. for whatever their reason is and then return home instead of staying in the U.S. Think of any, any student who's attending the league uh, university in the U.S. They would have to set up an appointment and talk to the consular The other role of the consular officers is taking care of American citizens abroad. So if anything happens, if someone's in France and they lose their passport or something good happens, like maybe they're in France, oop, baby was born early, I didn't expect this. Well, how do I get a birth certificate for Tennessee if I'm in Paris? Well, the answer is you can't. But what you can get is a document that shows that that baby is a U.S. citizen and the consular staff is the one that would issue that. I'm going to skip over these and go on to management. I am a management officer. As I said, I have a management personality and it fits very well because the management are in charge of taking care of all the administrative responsibilities at a post. So the officers who are doing the other work can focus on that work. So the management office is normally the biggest one when you talk about number of employees when you're overseas because it's so wide ranging. You have IT, like I said, the medical clinic, almost all those specialist positions report through the management officer, handling real estate, getting kids in school, getting contracting done, uh, HR, finance, all that rolls through the management office. So the management office is very similar to what you'd find in private industry. Public diplomacy. I call public diplomacy the face of US Foreign Service. These are the people who handle our social media. They are interfaced with journalists. They write scripts. They write speeches. That is their role is to be the face of the US Foreign Service and get communication out in a proper way. Now, I intentionally say political and economic for last because broadly, I always tell everybody they're the same job. And when I say that, what I'm saying is they're what's called reporting officers. Reporting officers report information. So the U.S. Uh, government does gather information. The U.S. State Department gathers information. The Foreign Service gathers intelligence. But we're not an intelligence agency. So the information we gather is normally open source, which means anybody can find it if they know where to look. And the other, and where these people really earn their living, is human, human intelligence, which is just simply getting to know the local community, the country you're in, understand the movers and shakers, the leaders in those communities, and start talking to them and finding out what's happening in that country. So what they do is they share that information with Washington, and you can think about it, what is an economic officer going to, going to report on? Economic information, political officer, political information. Almost every economic officer at some point does a tour as a political officer and vice versa. And as a matter of fact, at some posts, they'll have one supervisor supervising both economic officers and political officers. Now, these political and econ officers are also normally the ones who deliver message inward. So if Washington DC makes a decision and wants that information sent to, let's say the prime minister or the president or ministers within a specific country, it's usually going to be your Paul Econ officers who are the ones who are communicating that information to that country. Now, we talked about the specialists and those specialists when they join the US Foreign Service, 
they have to have that skill. So an HR person is going to have to come in with human resources skill. Facility manager is going to have to come in with facility management skill. When it comes to our officers, you can major in biology, you can major in sociology, engineering, international relations, you can major in whatever you want to in college because you're really not being measured on your major as far as your subject matter expertise in that skill. What we're looking at is 13 dimensions that we see in successful foreign service officer candidates. So what we're really looking for is how solid are you in these 13 areas because we can teach you what we need you to know every time you're going to go abroad. We have our own school called Foreign Service Institute. We teach tradecraft, meaning if you need to do consular work, we're gonna teach you what you need to know. If you need to learn language, you need to get Portuguese, we're gonna teach you. We have native speaking Portuguese teachers who are gonna teach you what you need to know. So what's important is you demonstrate as a candidate trying to become a US Foreign Service Officer that you have the acumen to learn, go abroad, apply it, and then return home and us again and again and again throughout your career. So these are the 13 dimensions. I would urge you at careers.state.gov to learn more about what we mean by these, but I do have three in red. Now, Uncle Sam doesn't say that these are more important, but my experience has shown me that these are really important and these are where some people tend to fall short and they are cultural adaptability. Again, let's say you're the best at whatever you do. If you're taken out of your environment and you're put somewhere else where everything is foreign to you, are you gonna crash and burn? Or are you gonna say, I better learn this and you're gonna learn it and you're gonna adapt. That's what we call cultural adaptability and that's crucially important to us. Initiative and leadership. There, is always an opportunity to take leadership because there's always something when you're overseas that needs to be done. And it costs Uncle Sam hundreds of thousands of dollars to send one of us overseas for an average three-year tour. So normally when we send our officers and specialists overseas, they can expect to be supervisors probably on their first tour and throughout their career. So leadership is very important. We actually have required education at each level. So every time someone gets promoted to the next level, they have to go take additional training because now they're going to be responsible for supervising people who are at a higher level themselves. And finally, I, I think in my opinion, this is the most important one is judgment because assuming you're the decision maker and all this information is accurate and it's been put before you and you examine it, you have to make the decision. So even if you're getting perfect information, you have to have good judgment to know what to do with it. So we talked about what's important to us. Let's talk about the path to becoming a diplomat. This is the Foreign Service Officer hiring path. It starts with taking a private test, uh, excuse me, a test at a private testing service called Pearson View. So when someone sits for the Foreign Service Officer test, they're going to have multiple choice, they're going to have some essays, and they're going to have a personal narrative they have to prepare. Multiple choice is really the only part you can study for through this entire process. And if you go to careers.state.gov, they go through detail, detail, explaining what you can expect. They have a reading list for you and other information 
to help you prepare for the FSOT. But basically, that's not your history books, your, your geography, uh, government, constitution. Start to understand, again, things you've probably already been taught, uh, but now you're going to be tested in them, and we want to see how much of it you actually know. And so that's something you can study for. The essay portion, it's pretty much like it sounds. It's an essay. So what they're going to be doing is asking you questions to, to test some of those 13 dimensions we talked about so we can see how you think and how strong you are in those areas. And then the last part is the personal narrative I mentioned. And that personal narrative is very important. And I always encourage people to take it seriously and keep in mind as you're writing a personal narrative, this is a general statement, but it definitely applies to us. Whenever you're writing as a candidate for a career opportunity, try to put yourself in the position of the employer. So if you're writing a personal narrative and you say, I went on vacation and had a greatest time and I want to travel internationally and I had some high school French and I really want to get good at it. So if I join the State Department, I can learn French. Is that helping Uncle Sam at all? No, no. So Uncle Sam's going to think, get in line. You want what a lot of people want. What we're looking for is, okay, you have some international experience. You have some language experience. How are you going to use that to help us? How do you separate yourself? So whenever you're going through the personal narrative or through any portion of this interview process, you want to keep in mind you come with certain skills already you've developed over your life, but ultimately you have to make the connection to how that is going to help uh, U.S. Foreign Service. So make sure you do that if you start this process. This information then goes before a qualifications evaluation panel, which people sit and say, okay, we have people who've met the minimum qualification, but we have to decide who are our strongest ones we're going to bring in for interviews. But of course, we're the government, we don't say interviews, we call them oral assessments. And our oral assessments are a rigorous day of testing where you have the classic interview style testing, asking questions and you answer the questions you also have some case studies you have to prepare. And during the day, when you go and take your oral assessment, there are other people who will be with you who are at the same of interviewing. So you will have a, at least one period where you're going to have to work with them as a team to meet some goals. And the uh, examiners are the people who are sitting around the room observing what's going on. And they're filling in all those boxes about those 13 dimensions with their observations on how you perform throughout the day. Well, the good thing is at the end of the day, you know if you passed or failed and you know what score you got. They're gonna sit down and brief you and say, okay, here's your score. Now let's take that and put it aside and let's get this done. And this is usually what slows the process down. Those are the medical and security clearances. Normally it's the security that takes longer than the medical, but you do have to get both. The security clearance has to be a top secret level clearance. And we say a rule of thumb, which means it is just, you know, kind of sort of a number that seems reasonable, is expecting it to be about a year. So some don't take that long and others take longer. It really truly does depend on your situation because the US government has to do their due diligence. Diplomatic security is in charge of this, but so they're the ones on the hook. 
So even if you have a clearance from another agency, they can take that into account. It may speed up the process some, but uh, do diplomatic security still has to do their due diligence before they're going to issue that top secret clearance recommendation. So once they issue the recommendation from the MED and for the security clearances, it then goes before a suitability review panel, which think of like an admissions panel in a college where people literally sit around a table and go through the totality of your package and make a binary decision, yes or no. You want to give this personal conditional offer, join the US Foreign Service. If they say yes, then they go back to that score you got in your oral assessment and they put it in what we call a register, which is nothing more than a list, a prioritized list. So whoever scored highest in management would be number one in management. Whoever scored number one in political would be number one in political. Number two in political would be number two. So all we're doing is taking the high scoring people and categorizing them in five different lists based on whatever that career track is. When it comes time for the A100 orientation class, which is the class where they bring in all the new entry level officers, they're gonna go back to that career register starting at the top and they're not just gonna take 20% of five, they're going to base it on whatever their hiring needs are. So projected on their needs, they may say, we need a dozen management, we need 20 consular, 15 political. So hopefully you're within those numbers. And if you are, then you are invited to the A100 orientation class. And once your fanny hits that seat, doesn't matter if you're 24 or 44, you are now an entry level officer in the US Foreign Service. And from that point forward, our attitude is we will teach you whatever you need to know and your per, uh, career progress will be based on your performance. That's the idea. Now, when we talk about the uh, specialist, there's, it's very similar, just a few changes. That you, that's really more at the beginning that what happens with the specialist positions is they will be announced at usajobs.gov. So what everybody should do is go to usajobs.gov and careers.state.gov and go put a tickler in, put your information in. So whenever one of these jobs is announced, that you get an email saying, we're looking for facility managers, go to usajobs.gov, and it'll take you there. You'll read that vacancy announcement, and it will tell you exactly what you need to do to apply for that position. Once the information is gathered from that, they'll go again through the process of deciding whether or not they want to invite you in for the oral assessment. The big difference in this case is in this process, you are going to have to take an exam on whatever skill that you're being hired for. So if you're being hired to be a financial person, you are going to have to take a, um, a test in finance to be able to show that you have that skill. The rest of the process is pretty much the same. There are minute, minute differences, but it's pretty much the same all the way through your orientation class. The one difference is they have with their orientation class, they'll bring in the specialists from uh, different career paths. So the finance people and IT people may all be in the same room. And the reason that matters is because when someone is an officer, when they uh, go through their orientation class, the last day of orientation is when they get their assignment. So everybody's kind of competing for the same assignment the number of assignments is gonna match the number of people in that class. So everybody knows they're gonna get one of those assignments. 
class for the, the specialists, if you have IT people there, they're only going to compete for IT positions and the uh, people who are finance will only compete for finance positions. So when you look at it that way, you know, if you're an IT person, there might just be six or seven. So you can kind of figure out what you're going to get with some probability. So now we talked about the processes and we're going to move on to the student programs and then go on to the Q&A. Ooh, there are a lot of programs here. So I'm going to go through a high level overview and ask you to go to careers.state.gov to learn a little bit more. And it'll probably lead you to another site because many of these programs are administered by other organizations. So one of our flagship programs, two of our flagship programs are the Wrangell and Pickering Fellowships. These are graduate level fellowships that are intended for people who come from categories that are historically underrepresented in the US. And these are normally applied for when the students are seniors in college or if they've already graduated and they're out working or doing something else and they want to go back and get their master's degree. The fellowship is for a two-year master's degree and it would have to be in one of the subjects that can be associated with one of those five uh, political, excuse me, five foreign service officer jobs. During this process, they have two internships. There would be one during the summer and the other, uh, excuse me, they're both during the summer. One would be in BC and one would be overseas. The real difference between the Wrangell and the Pickering Fellowship, the most substantive difference, is one of those internships. With the Pickering, the internship is normally main state and then overseas, whereas Wrangell, the first one is going to be on Capitol Hill and the second one would be overseas. Other than that, the programs are very, very similar. When somebody finishes the program, they then enter the, the US Foreign Service for a five-year commitment. It's like ROTC. So the expectation is you are going to spend five years as a foreign service officer. The reality is people stay. If people make it this far, they are usually looking for full careers in the US Foreign Service. So the other program that has its name on it is the Charles B. Rangel Summer Enrichment Program. We call this the Rangel Scholars. And in my opinion, this is the steal of every single program that we have because it's a six week summer program for undergraduate students. So these are our people, sophomores, juniors, seniors. They're gonna go to Howard University campus and take classes, college level classes that, that if you present this to your college, you might get credit for six hours of credit and they're gonna pay these scholars. Last year, I think it was $3,200. Meanwhile, the scholars are gonna be prepped. They're gonna be mentored. They're gonna go visit other agencies and see how the other agencies interact with the Department of State. So they're really learning what they need to learn to be successful, to compete for a fellowship they want to go on or to compete to become an officer and there's no commitment. So if they decide, well, this was great and I learned a lot, but you know, I don't think I wanna do this as a career. You just got paid. So that beats working at Kroger during the summer. A similar program we have is our Foreign Affairs Information Technology Fellowship. And it, it's, it's a younger program, but it was modeled after Wrangell and Pickering programs. This is specific to IT. I tell you, our IT jobs are a little more rigorous than what you might expect in the private world. 
because we expect people to supervise. And we were having some problems identifying the type of candidate we're looking for. And this is one of the reasons they created this program. The biggest difference between this model and the Wrangell Pickering is that it pays for two years of fellowship. So with the Wrangell and Pickering, you have to be a senior going on for a two-year master's degree, already have graduated and going for a two-year master's degree. With the FATE, it's paying for two years. So if you want to use that for your junior and senior year to get an IT degree, you can do it. Or if you want to use it for a two-year master's degree, you can do it. So let's say you were an accounting major and you're getting your bachelor's degree in accounting, but over time you've kind of learned you really like the IT side of it. You like the more techie side. In that case, you could use this to get your master's degree in an IT field. Someone who's in junior college who wants to go on and get their B, uh, BS in IT could use this for their junior and senior year. So that's the big difference. Other than that, again, they have the two internships and they also have that five-year service commitment similar to the other fellow found at faithfellowship.org. But again, the center of everything is careers.state.gov. You go there, it will lead you to everything you need to know. So now I'm gonna go through our last uh, our student opportunities. Keep in mind, all of these require US citizenship because they do require people to get their clearances. Uh, the flagship internship program is our US State Department internship program. And this is a program where students uh, do their internships either abroad at the embassies and consulates or back in DC or some other office that's domestic. You can learn more about these at usajobs.gov, careers.state.gov. One thing I always tell students is usually they limit the number of positions you can apply for. These are unpaid and what tends to happen, let's say you're allowed to apply for three. What tends to happen is people apply for the same ones. Everybody wants to go to, to Paris or Madrid or Rome or something like that. And that gets extremely competitive. However, you can learn a lot for, as an intern in DC because you're at headquarters. So yeah, you can learn a lot at the embassy in Rome, but you learn about the embassy in Rome. But if you work in the European office back in DC as an intern, you're learning about the embassies in all of Europe. So for career advancement or really learning something, these are excellent opportunities. And the domestic opportunities can also be less expensive since they're unpaid. The Virtual Student Federal Internship Program does not require clearance. And this is a program that is a federal program. The Department of State participates in this program. And basically the way this works is during the summer, July 1, it's announced, July 31, it closes, they interview during August and the student starts working as a virtual intern beginning of their academic year and goes through the end of their academic year. They commit 10 hours a week to doing work. So normally what happens is the supervisor meets with them. I meet with my intern every Monday, 10 a.m. We go through, she gives me the deliverables for the week or I give her further assignments and that's the process. So this program was set up to be a virtual program. So the pandemic had no effect on it whatsoever. And when this becomes available, there will be other agencies as well, not just the State Department. So some of our paid opportunities, again, the pathways, these are federal programs, uh, federal government programs. So it's not just State Department that has pathways. These are our paid internship programs. 
and they are, are mostly in the DC area, but these programs are for undergraduate students and actually you can be graduate students as well, now I think about it. But what they do is they are doing a lot of the work that civil servants would be doing. It can be beneficial if you do want a career as a civil servant, but also if you choose in the future to compete, become in the foreign service, you're already working at State Department so you can learn a lot. The Pathways recent graduate program is like it says, for people who are recent graduates, within two years after they graduated, they'd be eligible. And this program is more of a career development program. So if they can complete this, uh, do a good job and complete this through this program, then they should be placed in non-competitive opportunities, meaning that it'll be easier for them to get a full-time job because they would compete against people who are in similar situations than just everybody in the world. The last one I think I'll talk about is USFSIP, which is a two summer program, current sophomores or juniors. So they would have two summers after those years and they have to demonstrate financial need. So these interns, again, they're going through a development program where they spend time on policy desk and at the bureaus, they're learning everything about the foreign service. This does not come with a service commitment. So I'm wrapping up. Alan DuBose, DIR South at state.gov. All roads lead through careers.state.gov. And if you contact me and say you'd like to talk further, the first thing I'm going to say is when you went to careers.state.gov, what did it say about which career track we recommend for you? So make sure you take a look. And with that, I am open to questions. Alan, thank you so much. That was um, a, a fantastic presentation. And I'll just remind everybody that uh, this is going to be archived on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash TNWAC, and as a podcast uh, on our Global Tennessee podcast service on soundcloud.com slash TNWAC. So if you didn't catch any of the details, you can go back and uh, on the YouTube channel, look at the slides, or just listen to the presentation as a podcast. Um, Alan, I, um, let me ask a, a question about the process. Uh, when I retired from the military, I took the foreign service test and here at, uh, in Nashville at Belmont University, and I passed the test. And I think that was about June or so that I learned that I passed. And I was told that the, uh, the next step would be to go to Washington for a sit down, the face-to-face the, uh, -face examination in January. Um, life kind of gets in the way with a lot of people if you're not getting to step two of a five or six step process. So how, how does the average person deal with the lengthy, the length of the process? Because you've got uh, waiting time for medical and security backgrounds and this, this and that step. So uh, typically how long does it take from sitting down, taking the test successfully to sitting down in the classroom as a, uh, officer orientation candidate? So there are two factors that usually come into play that extend the process. And that is the security clearance itself. And then your background, because somebody who has had a pretty standard kind of living in the US background is probably not gonna take as long as someone who traveled a lot when they were growing up or they were studying. That's kind of the irony. You can learn so much by traveling overseas, but now it's right. going to take longer to get your clearance. But it just is what it is. 
I always tell people, don't try to time it because the reality is, you know, you can't really control. And also because it's not unusual for people to have to take the exam more than once before they're successful. It's very, very common. And he'll once I have a cat. My daughter needs to get the cat out of here. Um, so it's, it's very common for people to have to take the test more than once. In my case, I had to take it two times because I had a business background. And when it came to the writing portion, I wrote like a businessman writes, bang, 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 bang. It was all bullet type writing. So when I realized, oh, foreign service, they like that flowery sort of flowing writing. It sounds transitional and uses a lot of vocabulary. I said, I got it, okay. So when I took it the second time, I was successful. And all this to say that you really, it's, it's hard for you to try to time everything. I always encourage people to just progress in whatever it is you're choosing to do. Uh, it could be Peace Corps volunteer. It could be working for an NGO. It could be private. You could be doing anything in the private world you want to do. It could be continuing your studies if you want to get your MBA or graduate degree in something else. Here's the key thing, whatever you're doing, always be thinking to yourself, if I'm asked a question in that oral assessment about one of those 13 dimensions, how can I say what I've been doing falls in one of those categories? Because when our assessors ask the questions, they rarely ask people hypotheticals. They rarely say, uh, what would you do if? Normally what they say is, tell us about a time you had this situation and how you dealt with it. So as you listen to that, you think to yourself, okay, I get it. So basically, as I'm doing whatever I'm doing, I have to separate myself and show that I'm growing in one of these 13 dimensions. So when it gets to the time that I make it to oral assessments, it's not as important what you did as much as what you've learned while you're doing it. And, and I've just kind of seen through time, that to, to my surprise, people who work in customer service like airlines tend very well in consulate. And I, I didn't make that connection until I actually saw the work, but it's the same with the other subjects. So you don't necessarily have to be doing something that sounds really impressive. Like uh, I'm a journalist with the Washington Post. You know, you might be writing a newsletter but guess what? You might be responsible for everything for writing that newsletter. You have to get the money, you have to get the supplies, you have to meet all the deadlines. Oops, software is not working. How do I get this bug fixed? So you're developing a lot of skills that that person at the Washington Post may not be developing because they have someone else to do all that for them. So in terms the of in terms of the, uh, the the timeline, somebody should be prepared. You, you you should not only have a plan B in case it doesn't work out, but you need to have a plan A on the side while you're going through the process. It could take a year and a half, two years. Hypothetically, again, rule of thumb, we, I kind of say about a year, but mine took eight months. I've known people who've been over a year and a half. And when you hear their stories, you start to understand why. Because okay. they may have done something like travel to a country that the US didn't have the best relations with at that time, or they married somebody who was from one of those countries something that usually slowed down the clearance process. Okay, but in addition to the clearance, there's other time you have to account for, right? 
Yes, you do, but I'll honestly, those other parts are pretty much in order. Okay. It's, it's pretty clear. We get slowed down with the clearances. Well, we have a couple of questions about the, uh, the, the test. One question uh, from Seth, he's taken the test a couple of times and he sees his hang up as being writing that uh, you, you mentioned having to write a particular style. But he asked if, he, if you have any tips um, how to uh, sharpen his writing skills. There's nothing unique about this. It's not like the Department of State has a, a unique writing skill. I would just say it's a very educated writing skill. So think about if you're going to be writing a master's thesis, you want to have uh, clear introductions, you want to have analysis that makes sense, you want to take into account opposing arguments, you want to wrap everything up, ensuring that you're bringing to closure what your opening thesis was. It's nothing you haven't learned your freshman year of, of English. It's just how good are you? How, how good have you gotten at doing this? So I would encourage people to take every opportunity they can to just get better and better and better at their writing skills and ensure one thing. I'll say here's something that surprised me when I took this job. Um, probably 20% of the people never answer the question. They tell you what they want to tell you instead of reading the question and answering the question. So right. if there's a simple fix, answer the question. And, and like any other writing uh, application, uh, you, you become a good writer by writing. So I, I, would, I would encourage people to write uh, as often as possible, whether it's letters to the editor, uh, blog posts, wh whatever, wherever you can write, uh, whether it's for publication or just uh, just for the sake of, of writing and sharing your, your writing and asking people to edit things for you. That's let, me slide, let me slide one supplemental thing in here that I've also noticed over generation is that a lot of people write today as if um, they're helping you by giving you information for you to go do the work yourself. So they'll give you a link to something. That's not good. So get out of that habit of giving somebody a link and thinking they're gonna do all the work now you, your job is to present to the reader all the information the reader wants to hear in one clear document. And I think a lot of people are uh, succumb to the uh, temptation of writing narratives as if they're writing social media, which are uh, apples and oranges. Yes. Uh, we have a question, uh, uh, another question about uh, the Foreign Service Officer Program. Is it rare for people to make it as an FSO immediately after or even during an undergraduate program? I'm not going to answer that directly. What I will say is that the focus and the assessment is going to be on experience and answers that demonstrate a history of success in those 13 dimensions. So if you have someone who has basically been in foreign service type environments or environments where they have had opportunities to strengthen those 13 dimensions, they're going to be able to accomplish this at a younger age. Now, with that said, just for, I will give you one quantitative thing, is that the median age is, is inched up a little bit. So when I joined, it was around 29 for the entry-level officers, and it's crept a little bit over 30 right now. It's not going to stay right there, but I think if I had to say the sweet spot is probably right around 30. So given that it's not a bell curve, that means that probably on average, people start kind of sort of getting good around 25. And when I say getting good, meaning that they have the experience now to be able to compete 
the people who may be doing that. They put 20 years in the military and they made it as a major and now they're doing this as a second career and you got some other kid who's 24 years old. So it's hard to compete against that. And it does take a little experience. Now with that said, there was someone in my class when I started who was 24 years old. Yeah, you and I have seen uh, young younger folks uh, in, in this. I, I took a trip to uh, Ghana with a, a rotary group doing water wells out in the middle of nowhere. And when we were flying back out, uh, I put my World Affairs Council hat on and asked the uh, embassy for a, a briefing from the country team. And I think they were interested uh, in what we had to say about what was going on out in the wilderness. Uh, so we, we uh, spent quite a lot of time with them. And I was impressed by an econ officer who, I don't know how old she was, but she couldn't have been older than 24, 25. And she had been involved in uh, uh, developing negotiations with the Ghanaian government and she had escorted the president to the White House. And, and I was just blown away by the, the level of responsibility of these young FSOs uh, and the, the older FSOs, but uh, incredible opportunities to, uh, to live the adventure. Uh, we have a question uh, from Jason, actually two questions. His first is uh, how has the hiring process been impacted by COVID? And I, I suspect the, um, uh, the flow of uh, FSOs from post to post might be uh, affected as well. And uh, his second question is the Peace Corps common pop, uh, pipeline for FSOs. I would say that the first question regarding the, the process, it hasn't been the transferring of people it's been more the intake. The intake has been slowed down. And, and it's, it's, we're figuring this out a little bit. We've had to adjust, I'll just say that. There's been a lot of adjusting that's been going on. I think we'll get back to what our new norm is, whatever that's gonna look like, but I think it'll look more like the old norm um, over the next, I don't wanna predict numbers, but it's coming back to the, the norm of what we can expect. So that's a good thing. Um, what was the second part? I'm sorry, I forgot. Uh, is the Peace Corps a, a typical pipeline for people wanting to get into foreign service? Uh, I, I don't know if there's any word I would use as typical, but I, what I would say is Peace Corps volunteers, based on my observation, they prepare themselves very, very well for careers in U.S. foreign service because they master cultural adaptability. They master the ability to adjust to figure things out, they are accustomed to doing things without enough resources available to them. So they over, overcome obstacles all the time. Now, that doesn't mean, okay, I go join the Peace Corps and now I can get in. Because, you know, like in anything, they're, they're intangibles. And you notice I didn't say anything about leadership. So sometimes these people might come from the Peace Corps with a lot of great skills, but that doesn't mean that they're strong in all 13 dimensions. I always warn candidates, think of it like a bodybuilder. You, don't, you ever see the bodybuilder with these massive biceps and broad chest and skinny legs? You know, it doesn't look right. So we got 13 dimensions. Don't get good at eight of them and think I'm good to go. You gotta get the whole package. Okay, well, uh, let me mention that we're going a little bit over time here. Uh, um, uh, Alan, I appreciate your forbearance with us, but we have some great questions here, so we'll uh, press on for a little bit longer. Uh, what do you recommend studying uh, for the FSOT apart from the state.gov website? Actually, that state.gov website is, is going to be much 
better guidance than I can is you go through it, you're going to see they have, it's like the SATs. They have retired questions from the exam there. They have a reading list there. So that's really where you want to go. The other part I would add is get a mindset every day of your life to live more as a global citizen. So don't just be looking locally. Don't focus too much on social media. Watch BBC. When you go online, look at international newspapers. Find out what's going on in the world. Start reading The Economist. Read The Wall Street Journal. Start doing things that are less local and more global because if you join the Foreign Service, that's what they're going to expect from you is you know what's going on worldwide. And join a World Affairs Council. Definitely. Definitely. Because <laughs> uh, Seriously, I mean, if you're in an environment with people who are thinking the same way, it becomes natural. Yeah. Okay. We have a, a question from Casper. Uh, he uh, wants to know, has your econ finance background impacted the way you approach service? And have you ever been in a position where your service uh, and your uh, personal uh, beliefs are maybe at odds, uh, ethical conflicts in terms of U.S. policy? And how have you dealt with that? I know in the last administration, there were a number of foreign service officers who left uh, the foreign service due to uh, political considerations of the administration. So the two questions, uh, has your, your background as a professional in finance, uh, how has that uh, served you? And uh, what do you say about the people who might not agree 100% with the policy of the uh, administration in, in office? Sure, I'm gonna give you a real clear answer and one that's not. First question, I would say that I chose management as opposed to one of the specialist positions like finance my business operations background has been what's most helpful. It's been very helpful to have that background as opposed to the finance, eh, but really it was the business operations. Now, the one that you're going to hear a little different answer about um, the issues about not necessarily agreeing with policy. Here's my answer. I worked with several companies that ended up going bankrupt or they got bought out but one way or another, they're not here today. And many times in that environment, I didn't agree with everything they were doing. So the point I'm trying to make is it's easy to look at something in the public, especially government, and say, oh, I'm in this environment. How can they be working there? The reality is you can be in a small office with four people or you can be with a billion dollar company or in the government. At some point, there's a very good chance you're not gonna agree with your, your supervisors or somewhere up to the supervisory chain. And it's up to you, to each of you, to decide how you want to deal with that, how you want to navigate it, what's important to you. That's the reality of it. The one thing I would add, and this is something a lot of people do kind of struggle with grasping, the mindset is pretty much we represent U.S. government and not who's in that seat at that time. So we do not make decisions that are politically based. We follow, we have uh, uh, what's called the FAM, Foreign Affairs Manual, and its guidance. So we are supposed to be making decisions based on that guidance, not on our own political leanings, whatever those may be. Let me ask a question about the, uh, uh, probably a capstone along the way in the career of a foreign service officer and that is being an ambassador. Uh, I know we have political appointees and we have uh, career foreign service officers who become ambassadors. Are the career foreign service officers, are the FSOs the ones who are in line for those jobs 
for our FSS personnel in line for ambassadorial positions? The overwhelming majority are FSOs. So there are unusual cases where others have made it into ambassador positions, but keep in mind ambassadors, I know this, they wouldn't wanna hear this, but it's kind of like being a branch manager at a bank. You're the most important person at that branch, but you still report to headquarters. So right. really the, the policy makers back in DC are the ones who are really providing the policy and the ambassadors implementing that policy. So they also tend to rise from the ranks of the FSOs. And that's one of the reasons that they require the FSOs to do something outside of their career track because they want them to get as broad knowledge as possible as all the, of all the workings at a post. I've interviewed a few ambassadors to Saudi Arabia when I was writing newsletters about uh, the Middle East. And uh, one of them likened uh, being the ambassador in Riyadh to being the mayor of a small town and responsible for the defense attache and the commerce. It, it's, it's like a collection of different agencies, not just uh, American diplomats, but uh, there's all kinds uh, within the walls of the embassy. Is that right? There definitely is, and much of it depends on whatever the U.S. interests are in that country. But here's a little thing a lot of people don't realize is that the hardest working person at post is usually your DCM, Deputy Chief of Mission. Everything goes through the DCM before it gets to the ambassador's office. So what rises to the level of the ambassador is only a percent of what's really going on. So you talked about the career versus the political appointee ambassadors. If we are going to have a political appointee ambassador at a post, we're going to get a DCM who's already ambassador quality because we know that that political appointee, they're learning as they go. So we're going to have to get a DCM who really knows everything backwards and forwards. Whereas at another post, if you have someone who spent 30 years and they're the ambassador, you know, we might get a DCM who this is his first time doing this sort of thing. So we look at each case individually based on the needs and everybody's skills and abilities as our succession planning. Yeah, DCM is the deputy chief of mission and the ambassador is the chief of mission. And I suppose that having the uh, a top-notch DCM is even more important at a post where there's a political appointee who doesn't have the, uh, the context and background of, of serving in the, as a diplomat. It's huge. Okay, let's uh, take a question from Evan, who's interested in foreign language education uh, right now, and he wants to know if there are teaching jobs within the Department of State. And, I, and you mentioned the Foreign Service Institute, and I know they do language training there. Can you talk about how somebody uh, gets into teaching foreign, foreign languages? Those jobs would be announced uh, through usajobs.gov, but here's the catch. They want native speakers. So they're usually looking for native speakers in that language because they want to teach so the students can really go to a country and speak that language. I took six weeks of Spanish. I think I had four different teachers. Why? Because they wanted me to hear a Colombian accent. They wanted me to hear a Cuban accent. They didn't want me to get an academic experience. They wanted me to get a real life experience in that language. And the native speakers bring that. Let's ask uh, one question on behalf of McLean, who wants to know about the uh, State Department internship program and the Wrangell Summer Enrichment uh, Program. What particular skills would best qualify McLean for those programs uh, if they're different than the skills that you brought up earlier? They're not different. 
So basically what they've done when putting, they put these fellowships together is the Department of State says, we want you to go get these fellows and develop them to have these 13 dimensions. So essentially those 13 dimensions, that's what they're looking for. They just apply it a little differently, but that's ultimately the goal. If anybody has real detailed questions about any of these fellowships, I have them contact me at dirsouth at state.gov because it is a competitive process and we can go through someone's unique situation and I can make suggestions to them on how to approach it given their unique situation. All right, well, we uh, have a few questions left, but uh, for those uh, folks, if you uh, would like to send uh, your query to that email address, uh, I suspect that uh, Mr. DeBose will be happy to answer those last questions, but we've gone over uh, considerably. Again, uh, thanks to uh, Alan DeBose for being with us. Uh, Alan, uh, best of luck with you and the remainder of your, your tour. Do you have uh, a post uh, ahead after, after this? I'm one year away, so I'll be leaving summer of 2022, which means that I should be finding out probably around November of this year where I'll be going next. Okay, and, and you've uh, you've been in the Americas and uh, the Middle East. Do you have a, a a preference? I know in the Navy we got to fill out what we call the dream sheet, where we told yep. them where we wanted to go, and then we found out where they wanted us to go. So what? How does that work in the State Department? Very similar. Uh, what happens is we get our list, and that list is broken down by grade as well. So first it looks like a massive list, but then you figure out well what's my grade and how does it compare. So realistically, what we say is if we get our, one of our top three choices, we're, we're pretty happy with that. And my experience has been through my career that I tend to get uh, one of my top three, maybe four. So if I, if I make uh, the attempt this time, it will probably be for a Spanish speaking post. So we'll see how that goes. Now, was Dubai a uh, family uh, accompanied tour? Yes, the overwhelming majority of posts are accompanied by family. There are only a few, and those you can kind of figure out, like Baghdad and Kabul, where there are one-year tours and no family is allowed. There right. are some posts where families would be allowed, except for the academics aren't acceptable quality. So in those cases, what they do, remember I said, Uncle Sam can give you some money. So what they'll do is they'll say, well, we'll pay for your kid to go anywhere you want. So I know someone who took the money and sent his kid to some ritzy prep school up in Connecticut while they were overseas in Dubai. Well, uh, it, it's, it's a small uh, contribution of the sacrifice that uh, the men and women in the Foreign Service makes uh, serving America overseas. And uh, on behalf of the World Affairs Council, a big hat tip to you and your colleagues. And thank you for being with us, uh, diplomat in residence, Alan DeBose from uh, Atlanta Spelman College. That's where he is. He's given his uh, email address. Again, a reminder that this uh, broadcast will be archived in our youtube.com slash TNWAC uh, channel on YouTube. And a reminder, please take a look at tnwac.org slash join. We encourage you to become members of the Tennessee World Affairs Council to increase your potential to do, be a successful applicant. We now need to put that on our website, become a member of the World Affairs Council. It could be your step to uh, American diplomacy. Uh, thanks again, Alan, and thank every, thanks to everybody uh, for joining us tonight. Everybody be safe and uh, take care. Bye-bye.